This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. I would like to dedicate this episode of Burn It All Down to my godmother, Shonda Renee Johnson, the woman who taught my mom how to braid hair on a on a Cabbage Patch doll so I didn't look a mess, taught me how to play cards, uh, taboo, how to shake a tambourine, uh, taught me how to love and open doors and, and treat everybody like family, love them fiercely, and uh, make the world a better place. Renee joined the fourth 184,000 people in the United States who've lost their lives to COVID two weeks ago. I am rejoicing that you are free from pain, but you did not deserve this. This country failed you. I love you very much, and we will miss you. Sleep well. Hi, flamethrowers. Lindsay here. Um, want to thank Amira for the beautiful opening and want to keep everyone who has lost loved ones um close to our hearts um, this week. Also want to wish everyone a Black History Month. And I want to give a, a quick shout out. I usually don't do this at the top of the show, but um, Athletes Unlimited Softball just released a great documentary series um, hosted by a friend of the show, Ari Chambers, about um, you know the Black players in their league and about being Black athletes in softball. Um, and I just recommend everyone um, checking that out. It's in our show notes and uh, is just a great, um, a great watch for sure. This week on the show, I am joined by Amira and Brenda once again. They left me alone with the professors, so we'll just see how this goes. Um, see if I can survive. See if I'm on my best behavior. Hopefully I will not be getting a grade at the end of this episode, but we're going to be talking about being women in a man's world, essentially. There have been some, uh, a lot of sexual harassment talk for women in media, um, specifically related to baseball. And we just kind of wanted to use that as a starting point for conversation about, uh, you know, sexual harassment um, in the workplace and, of course, all the intersectional ways that impacts our lives and kind of where we can go from here. How many stories are not written because people are like, I don't want to deal with harassment today or I don't want to do this. Or like, particularly, I think about Black women, it's like, what what isolation do you choose? It's like, choose your own adventure. But first, look, we're in the middle of the Australian Open and that means it's Serena Williams time. And that means it's time to talk not only about her play on the court, which has been phenomenal so far. We're recording this Sunday right after she 
um, defeated Sabalenka in the fourth round and made it to the quarterfinals. But she's got she's wearing something fabulous again. And so I just had to ask my co-host, what is your favorite Serena Williams tennis outfit of all time? Amira? Yeah, I think it's the current one. I think it's this Flojo-inspired Nike one-legged catsuit that she's currently wearing in the Australian uh, Open. Her outfits were like always amazing and so this year we thought of what can we do to keep elevating um the serena williams on the court and uh the nike team actually thought of this design of inspiration from flojo and i was like oh my god this is brilliant so brilliant and um that's- it's not really a surprise it's it's flojo and serena and her ass in that catsuit is magnificent and it's sitting. I mean, that thing is sitting. Um, so yeah, I would have to say it's it's this current one. That's a good choice. It is a very good one. Bren, what about you? I covet to this day what she wore 21 years ago? What? I don't even believe that's real. At the 2000 Australian Open, she wore a color black Puma outfit that I would want to wear at every single occasion in my life if I could get my hands on it. And I wouldn't do it justice, but it's just so cool and clean, like the lines of it. And it looks so comfy and it would just like would pack everything in right. So that's mine. I was actually going back through the time and looking at all the Puma stuff uh, from the early days and falling in love with it <laughs> as well. Uh, Bren, and look, obviously anything catsuit related is legendary, but I have a special place in my heart for the denim skirt that she wore. <laughs> the denim and the crop top. I think it was really, really ahead of its time. And honestly, like, Let's let's bring it back, right? Because now, like, you know, we see there's jeggings, right? Like denim, the <laughs> denim look doesn't have to be real denim, you know? And so that's very in right now. And I think we have Serena Williams to thank for that. I really, really do. Um, so I think that's what I've been thinking about lately. Um, but honestly, they're all just so great. Well, okay, not all of them. There have been some missteps. <laughs> I love her, but we have to be honest. All right, so in January... Eyewitness News at 5. New York Mets have fired the team's general manager after reports that he sent explicit texts to a reporter... Uh, ESPN reporters Mina Kimes and Jeff Passan reported that New York Mets general manager uh, Jared Porter um, had sent explicit, unsolicited texts and images to a female reporter in 2016, culminating um, with a very explicit photo The woman, who was a foreign correspondent who had moved to the United States to cover Major League Baseball, at one point ignored 60 straight text messages from Porter before he sent the final um, explicit photo. Um, After the report came out, Porter was fired um, from his job as the general manager of the New York Mets, but of course that wasn't the end of the conversation. This month, um, Brittany Garoli and Katie Strang at The Athletic reported about Mickey Calloway, the former New York Mets manager and current pitching coach for the Los Angeles Angels. Um, They said that he had aggressively pursued at least five women who work in sports media, uh, sending three of them inappropriate photographs um, and one of them to send photos, nude photos in return. 
um, and he explicitly made comments on their appearance that made them incredibly uncomfortable at in one point, making her physically uncomfortable as she interviewed him doing her job. Um, so the five women who spoke to the athletic on the, under the condition of anonymity, um, said that, you know, these actions span at least five years, multiple cities and three teams. More than that, they were warned about his behavior from fellow media members who worked in baseball. One of the women said it was the worst kept secret in sports. Um, I want to read something that a um, friend of the show, Lindsay Adler, who is a um, Yankees reporter for The Athletic, wrote. Lindsay said, what I would like to be clear to people who care about baseball is that for every Jared Porter or Mickey Calloway, there are 200 otherwise good people brushing off smaller sexist insults and indignities. She wrote this in a piece from The Athletic um, Back in January, she said, from my perspective, being a woman in sports is hard to describe. It's both difficult and totally fine at the same time. Sexism is often tough to describe, to convey, to make credible to people who don't experience it themselves. I find value in people being outright misogynist to me instead of subtly condescending in a way that makes me wonder if I'm being talked down to because I'm a woman, because I'm smallish, youngish person, or if the person I'm talking to is just an asshole. Sexism is nebulous. It's insidious. People often think of it as something like a wrecking ball, clear to see, totally destructive. It is not a wrecking ball. It is some sort of airborne particle. It floats around and we live in its world, not the other way around. So I should mention Callaway has been suspended, but not officially fired from the Los Angeles um, Angels. But I just want to talk that, you know, I am a woman in sports media. We all are to some extent. I also know academia can be an incredibly male dominated field, especially history and historians. And so um, I kind of want to open up to a discussion about that, about how we've handled it and about what we think going forward. Um, first, I want to say that, of course, this is nothing new. Um, in baseball in particular, if we're talking about baseball, um, female reporters weren't even allowed into locker rooms until uh, Melissa Lucke's, um lawsuit in 1978, <laughs> which is pretty, pretty startling uh, to think about. And even to this day, there are still people arguing that women should not be reporting um, in men's locker rooms, even though it is a place of business, right? Like that is where they have decided that that is where you go to get quotes, right? If they didn't want people in the locker room, well, there are tons of sports where you don't go into the locker room to get quotes, where the players meet you outside afterwards. That could be an option, but they've decided it's a place of business. Um, but anyways, I just want to throw it, uh, I guess, first to Brenda. I know you've done a lot of studies about um the formal workplace from, from a historical perspective and how sexual harassment has been dealt with. Yeah, I think that the quote about it's pervasive and nebulous, the idea that we're living in that world and that it's around us all the time is is really a, a, a powerful and wonderful, um, wonderfully articulate, not wonderful that we're living here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it is important to recognize um, that there's so much grassroots activity that has brought this to light and has created structures for us to use, even if they're incomplete. And so, I mean, anti-sexual harassment campaigns 
came right out of the civil rights movement um, as well as the feminist movement in the 1960s. So there was the idea as women moved into the formal workplace, it caused, you know, more and more in a professional sense of these cases to be able to concretize, right? So the Cornell case in 1975 is very famous where the woman was persistently sexually harassed as a staff member at Cornell and then fired. And so there were some very clear cut cases because they were in formal workplaces. And we can get into the ways in which that protected a certain privileged kind of woman vis-a-vis the more vulnerable women who have always worked in the non-formal workplace. But in any case, in the 1970s, a lot of different organizations and lawyers um, began to take these cases to court. And I think we should just recognize Eleanor Holmes Norton, who was then in the 19, in 1970, the legal assistant legal director of the ACLU and civil rights activist, who came up with, I mean, not single-handedly, but certainly um, a tremendous amount of work using the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission um, for gender discrimination under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, which meant the statute says that employers cannot discriminate against their workers based on race, religion, or sex. And sex, like, just got in there at the end. <laughs> like, it almost just wasn't even in there. So Norton um, was appointed the first woman chair of New York City Human Rights Commission. She remains the delegate, um, I know this will be close to Lindsay's heart, um, from D.C. to Congress. So This was amazing in terms of her and the rest of her um, colleagues trying to push this forward. And I think, you know, we have a big debt to pay. And also just to think about the cost, the personal cost for some of these women um, in their careers. And I, I also just, I mean, I think about Anita Hill, right? 1991. And think about the fact, though, that once she filed with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the number of complaints doubled within like two years. So just to to kind of shout out some of that history, I think is really important when we're thinking about how do we even have a basis? So there's one thing when it's nebulous and, and we know how insidious that is. And then there's the whole legal thing, which is just, you know, just the tip of the iceberg. Amira? Yeah, I'm really happy that you mentioned Eleanor Holmes Norton because, um, Norton was a black woman who was also uh, also formed a group uh, about African-American women for reproductive freedom um, and was really one of uh, many black women who had come out of the civil rights movement and were kind of marginalized, sidelined within women's liberation and moving into the 70s and 80s, started forming their own groups that sought to um, talk about both racial and sex-based discrimination and couple that under civil rights laws and really push for legislation in these areas. And I think it's really important because it was part of this notion, right? Like that black women are the canary in the mines. That if if you do what's right for black women, it's gonna raise all all boats, right? For for black people, for white women as well. And I think this is important and for me personally to start the conversation, um, because when I think of this, I can't disentangle it from race. And even as we're talking about places of employment and sexual harassment, like it's very hard for me to even wrap my head around that without thinking about the fact that a lot of 
this gets professionalized as white women are moving into the workforce um, towards the back half of the 20th century because black women who predominantly worked in precarious labor positions in households as domestics, right? One of the biggest things of their job was trying to avoid being sexually harassed and raped um, by white employers. And it also reminds me of these, in, in Black women's history, we kind of have these twin peaks of understanding between testimony, right? So the long history of Black women, like Eleanor <laughs> um, Norton, um, like Anita Hill, who who speak up, who testify, who use their voice um, to to raise the issue and, and to push back on this. We know there's a long history there. It's Black History Month. I'll give you a book recommendation. Go check out Danielle McGuire's um, At the Dark End of the Street about the Montgomery bus boycott. One of the things she does is show you that Rosa Parks was a rape justice advocate who toured the country getting justice for Black women, but it also shows you that the Montgomery bus boycott was about bodily autonomy and, and led by Black women. Um, but the reason why I mention that is because the other the other peak right the other kind of pole uh, of understanding is something that Darlene Clark Hine calls the culture of dissemblance which speaks to another long history um, which is of black women who don't say anything particularly when it um, means that it might cast aspersions or have consequences for black men and when uh Lindsay was talking about baseball and I think about my research in baseball. This is also what I came back to. I think about the historical subjects I write about who were in baseball as, as athletes and as reporters and I'll be in the archive and I'll see somebody saying the strike zone is pussy high or I'll, I'll read about an anecdote of some reporters talking about um, Effa Manley or somebody in, in talking about uh, her womanly wiles or seeing Tony's face in Buster Haywood's lap or um, somebody running their glove up a body as somebody sliding into second. And then I'll go to the women's words and they'll say, we were like, they were like 26 brothers to me. And I see that, that culture of dissemblance in action. And I, and I feel like that for me, that area between those two things is very much on my mind, the forefront of my mind when we talk about, what survival looks like in these in these workspaces in these male dominated workspaces in these white workspaces how do you survive um and we know that testimony has a lot of consequences um and i think the semblance has has just as many i think that is so i mean one of the things about that too is the way in which globally that's true about anti-blackness right and the way in which women are in these positions so just to briefly mention for people who don't know other recent pervasive sexual harassment has occurred in both the Barbados Football Association and the Haitian Football Association and these cases have been going on for two decades and part of the problem is that in these Caribbean cultures, which also grapple with racism and hierarchy, the women have had to face that same question. Do I want these are black men in powerful positions? If I'm doing this, it it, it has another context that's just laden. If I'm going to speak out and I'm going to go through a court system that I already don't trust, that's already stacked against me. And now I have to do it um, in a very public way and in a way I might be accused of, quote unquote, tearing down 
some professional black men. And so it's it's interesting for me to hear. And I see a lot of parallels with, you know, what's going on in, in global football as well. Yeah. And it's, you know, we look at this from a structural point of view, which is so important. And then there's also like the deeply, deeply personal. I know for me, um, hearing from my friends who work in baseball, um, baseball in particular, but also who are beat reporters um, in other men's sports, um, even the most liberal and outspoken and you know, safe and secure job wise and powerful among them, the amount of things they're, they are conditioned to swallow and just to deal with on an everyday um, basis um, from those who are women of color to the racism um, that they face, those who are non-binary face targeted harassment in that way. And of course, there's the, you know, just the sexism. Um, And there's also, of course, I think a part, you know, one of the reasons why what Lindsay Adler wrote really stuck out to me was, you know, the talk about the stuff that you can't see, that you can't maybe fight about in in a courtroom that isn't so um, blatant. And for me, it's the fact that if you're a woman or uh, any non-cisgender male who is not quote unquote, conventionally attractive, which usually means thin, um, that you're often in sports media, not even let into the door. So it's if you're considered conventionally attractive enough to get in the door, then you're harassed. And if you're not, you're not even like, uh, you know, allowed into these spaces. And there's something just so, um, grows about that. And I think about the ways that I have chosen to structure my career um, as a fat woman who, you know, has structured in a way where I'm not uh, even thinking about on-camera opportunities. Do you know what I mean? Like they don't even, I don't even let myself consider that as a possibility because I just know it's not you know, it's not possible for me and I don't want to let, but you know, you see a lot of overweight men on TV all, all the time. Uh, And it's even more than that. It goes down to sources. It just goes down to the way that kind of um, a lot of fat women will tell you, uh, we can tell you if your boyfriend is really a nice person or not um, by the way they treat us, because there's so many men who only treat women like human beings, human beings, that's in quotes, because, you know, whatever, but if they do want to sleep with them. So even if they don't, they're not going to go after you, even if they're happily, you know, married, even if they, they come off as an ally, they literally do not know how to converse with someone of a different sex if they do not want, like, you know, if they, if they do not find them conventionally attractive and it's something that's really hard to explain, but it has impacted me in my sources. It's impacted me in all of these ways where, you know, there's this whole group of people who can't even really look me in the eye, who all of my uh, thin friends think are great allies, think are some of the best allies in the business. And they won't even look at me. Um, and so it's just so insidious and there's so many layers to it. I mean, of course we keep 
I keep thinking about how the the female reporter that Jared Porter targeted was foreign and English wasn't her first language and she was alone in the city. So anyways, I've just been struck by all the layers to this um, and how many, you know, how I know it's impacted all of us. Um, Bren? Oof. I'm, I'm so sorry, Lynn. It's all of it is so awful. It's also awful. It's also awful. I think for me, there's so many ways in which it's impacted my enjoyment of my career and the questioning of myself and my security. So there's been a range of things. One of the things I've faced is not being um, funny in terms of of gender discrimination. Like, I'm not going to go to the bar with a bunch of male colleagues and laugh off whatever and sort of say it's bad, but not really. And working for an NGO means that I'm quite identified as a person who will be very publicly critical, whether it's in writing or in talks or working in grassroots organizations. So I've been denied credentials, even when writing for Sports Illustrated and The Guardian, which you would think are outlets that might deserve something. (laughs) I've been denied credentials for both the Women's World Cup. I've been harassed on Twitter, not in a sexual harassment way, but by Alex Stone from FIFA who will argue with any type of criticism that I have to say. He is the head of their um, publicity. And it's also come in this grassroots way where I am a white woman that works on Latin America, and I go down there, and so my the fact that I'm a gringa is compounded by the fact that I'm a woman. And so after publishing books and articles on this, and even when male scholars know that, they will literally start to tell me that soccer is a sport with 11 people on each side, um, that there's this complicated offside rule. And I just have to sit with that shit. Like, I just have to sit there. And what am I going to say? You know? Um, And so it's been really hard. And then, of course, in, in academia, I mean, there was multiple instances of sexual harassment, especially as a graduate student, when you're the most vulnerable. So we're coming to this over and over again, right? Whenever you're at the beginning of your career, whenever you're the most vulnerable, this is most likely to happen. It's not the only time, but these men know who they're picking. This isn't this isn't like now that I'm a full professor, I will tell you, I know that they would be less likely. It, it's not that they are not going to do it ever. But um, that is a calculation that's being made all the time. And so it's not just happenstance. And something that just infuriates me about that is there's an assumption when it's written about and when it's looked at by different organizations that the woman's career isn't going to be as brilliant as the man's. So it's, it's tragic that the man had this flaw rather than it's tragic that we might have lost a genius. Or it might have impacted this young woman who was, you know, had this hugely bright future ahead of her. And that's so rarely considered, you know, and I find it infuriating. Absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the things about history, you know, uh, that a lot of people don't know is like our job interviews used to be conducted in hotel rooms, right? Like at this massive conference in hotel rooms when you're a grad student and you're going in and you're 
sitting and interviewing for a job literally on a hotel bed and then you know there was a reckoning ish and then that started to get phased out and now everybody's kind of doing things on zoom um but the the field has definitely reckoned with this like so many industries have um but i think that here's the thing for me when we think about me too or we think about these reckoning these racial reckonings or whatever is often the stories get told going back to thinking about dissemblance is just the tip of the iceberg right like even here we're consciously editing and redacting the hard parts, right? Mm -hmm. Each time we're mm -hmm. telling you just like the tip of the iceberg, we're just trying to articulate the tip of the iceberg, right? But there's this whole underbelly that's even in this space, which is a safe space, I know we're not engaging with, right? And I think about that a lot. I just wrote about this for Modern American History for a journal about Black professors, um, about black in the ivory where I realized like even in those answers we were just like here's a little bit of stuff right and I think that for me when I think about this what I come away with most is the profound sense of isolation that comes whether it's the isolation of kind of keeping it in or letting a little bit out here a little bit out there I think for me this is absolutely compounded by race and so like when I'm in this group I can I can let y'all see the underbelly of the iceberg when it comes to sexual harassment when it comes to kind of gender-based discrimination but I know that like there's stuff that I hold back whereas when I'm talking to black men we definitely can do that kind of iceberg work around race and it takes a lot for me to try to figure out okay, what can I then disclose to them in, in other ways and and I just feel isolated right just profoundly isolated in all of all of that kind of maneuvering um and i think about that you know we talk about this brenda like how it's compounded by sports it's compounded by history it's compounded in all these spaces we work in and i think that's really true because not only do we work in academy and in a profession that's grappling with this but in sports and as Lindsay said has its own really deep-seated ways of reminding you you're less than um, and I think that I've watched male colleagues who do sports history or sports studies especially black men you know get through doors and open doors that that aren't there and then I've made calculations like when people are being condescending that's fine like I've made calculations of like how, how do I play this game like do I let them think I'm this naive right because I get more if they're like hey, you know, I'm going to, you know, take credit for you or, or you're going to be like my little sister or whatever. And I've had to really figure out when are people being genuine and when is it wrapped up in other things? Um, and that's hard math, a hard calculation to be doing constantly. Um, and like Brenda said, like that part of my brain, like what what thoughts am I missing out of? What research opportunities am, am I shying away from? To Lindsay's point, like, what stories are you backing off of? You know, what calculations are are you're making? And maybe that kind of goes into this next part, Lindsay, you know, and maybe I'll just pose the question, how how do you see this impacting what stories are told in reporting, in history, in, in media? Like how, like Brenda said, like the consequences here are not just individual feelings. What What else do we see going on? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, perfect transition. Thank you. I think about this all the time. I mean, the the two stories we we cited at the top of the the show were written by you know primarily written by women. I know that Jeff Passan helped Mina Kimes with that story, but she was the one who originally got it um, back in 2016. So, um, you know, I think about how, you know, these stories of sexual harassment in sports, of sexual assault in sports, um, of these realities, how many of those are um, swept under the rug? Um, I think about how, how few women and of especially black women being in um, sports media impacts the framing of stories. So there was a study from a few years ago by the Women's Media Center that found that in the general kind of population, 55% of stories written about campus sexual assault were authored by men compared to 31% by women. Um, but in the sports section, that that was drastically more skewed towards um, men and you know we know that about ninety percent of writers are um, men, <laughs> white men in particular, and uh, this this trickles down right. That same study found that male sports writers sourced other men eighty one percent of the time in their stories about sexual assault in college sports. Wow. And only quoted women 7% of the time. And of course, that doesn't add up to 100 because some of them, they couldn't, you know, define gender or didn't know or was anonymous. Whereas female sports writers quoted other women 49% of the time in their stories. That is 7% versus 49%. Like, that's a huge difference. Um, And that isn't even broke down on race. And I'm sure that it is predominantly white. Um... And so, you know, this just, this just extrapolates. And I think of, it's only kind of now that more, a few more women have gotten in the door that we started to push forward the conversation of sexual assault in sports a little bit more. And it sucks that that has to fall on women, right? I know that I didn't set out wanting to write about domestic violence and um, sexual assault in sports. I didn't even start out wanting to write about, you know, women's sports necessarily. But I saw how few people... First of all, when Ray Rice happened, I saw poorly everyone was doing both. And the men, a lot of the men didn't even try to cover it with grace. They just automatically, you know, were like, oh, women, you do this hard work and pushed it off. Of course, as I got more into the industry, I realized how much women's sports were being completely left out and found was able to find a niche for myself in that world. Um, But, you know, it's just so many stories are left on the cutting room floor because of who is and who isn't, you know, let in the door. Um, and then, of course, there's the framing. I mean, I know a lot of people have been watching that Britney Spears documentary lately about the, from the New York Times about how women were talked about in the um, early aughts and late 90s. And, you know, sports media was doing that too, you know. That's the same. It's the same world we all grew up in. So all of this just impacts the framing. So, yeah, I think that... Um... I think about this a lot around what you said about like not even going into this to to work on what a lot of us work on now. Um, and I think about that because there's this way that like I really tried to avoid doing black women's history because um, I didn't want to be typecast or put in a box or like all these things that were actually really attached to like 
messages I was receiving um, and feeling like, you know, even sometimes I still feel this way. Like I don't, it's not fun being like the well actually person, right? Like it's not fun, you know, being like, (laughs) you know, okay, this is great, but like actually, and then it makes me so mad because like, why isn't it fun? It doesn't like insisting that people recognize that black women exist is not actually doing like evil work. Like that's not even like, and why does that make me feel really shitty for reminding people that black women exist and, and they don't feel shitty for forgetting in the first place. And that's something that I'm still kind of grappling with. But I, I do think that this calculation I think about in terms of considering the cost, there's this um, book that is uh, a kind of classic published in 1982 um, on Black women's studies. And it's called All the Women Are White, All the Blacks Are Men, But Some of Us Are Brave. And um, it was edited by Gloria Hull and Patricia Bell Scott and Barbara Smith. And I, you know, always knew of this text, but I never really got the brave part. Like, I was just like, some of us are brave. Like, yeah, okay. But like, I, I I didn't fully understand it. And as my career has continued I get it more and more and more and more and more. And when the editor from New Republic called and asked me to write a piece on Kobe, I was like, fuck no. And I think about that because to me, that's when I really, I think, first like fully, fully felt what bravery meant. And I think about that because I did, of course, write the piece and then, you know, the harassment came and stuff like that. But what I tried to do in that piece is find that voice of Black women who were caught between kind of Black patriarchal worship and um, a lot of white feminists who were kind of flattening other, other parts of this. And the feedback I got from them made it worth it to me and fortified me and made me brave. But I was talking to, you know, some black men recently and they were like, oh, we should, we would have told you to stay out of that. Or sometimes you got to learn how to like stay away from that or like, it's not worth the trouble. And that's when I really realized like what that bravery meant. And I get it now. Now I really get it is like that considering the cost, but how many stories are not written because people are like, I don't want to deal with harassment today or I don't want to do this. Or like, particularly I think about black women, it's like, what, what isolation do you choose? It's like, choose your own adventure, right? Like, who are you going to, how are you going to do it? And if you stand up and, and, and center it on us, that's that isolation. Cause it just feels like there's no home. Um, so I get the bravery now. And I thought about that this week. I just want to point out, um, Jamie Goodall wrote a piece for Made by History about the Buccaneers. You know, Brenda had made this point um, before we talked about the Super Bowl um, and did a history of pirates around Tampa Bay and stuff like that. And uh, Dr. Goodall is a historian at the uh, of military history at the Army Center. And it was like sports plus history plus military. The harassment that she received for writing this simple piece that giving you context about pirates was wild and just what you would expect. And I think about that and I think about her willingness to still publish that and still give people this context. And that to me, that's that's that bravery. And and I really understand. I understand that now. Of course, then the conversation has to switch to like, is there any way to change this, right? Like we could go on and on. We could have a month's worth of episodes, right? On the topics we discuss 
we've discussed prior to this, but I just keep thinking about how these systems were built. Um, I'm going to do this weird thing and actually just quote myself <laughs> from something I wrote in Power Plays a few months ago, um, because I've been thinking about this a lot and I, I don't think I can summarize it. So I might as well read what I wrote already. But this was when all the, um, stories about sexual harassment within the Washington football team came to light by the Washington Post reporting. And I was kind of thinking about how, um, you know, some parts of that story, which were during HR, there was a formal, you know, training, and then the women would be taken aside by other women and be told that, hey, there's this clear staircase where if you walk up it, people can see up your skirt from like the bottom. So avoid taking that staircase and things like that. And, you know, the truth is like most women who have risen to positions of power within this sports industry, you know, have done so by brushing off harassment and finding a way to like be one of the boys um, so the survival skill that gets passed down from generation to generation is often tolerance because that's how they've climbed up the ladder. Um, so the advice often given um, to people who are being marginalized by those who are at the top isn't always about how to get justice or how to make the harassment stop or how to teach men to be better or how to make the workplace safer. The advice is about what staircase to avoid and which bathroom to cry in, which member of the PR staff you don't want to be stuck with late night in the press box, which big money donor gets a little bit too handsy after his second vodka on the rocks. The advice is never, it seems, about changing the system so it's more inclusive. It's about how women need to change so they don't disrupt the system so that it keeps working as is. Um... You know, on that note, Lindsay Adler of The Athletic reported that um, the Major League Baseball has updated its policies on sexual harassment and workplace discrimination um, as a result of the Jared Porter and Mickey Calloway stories. Um, they've established an anonymous hotline to report harassment discrimination, which will be operated by a third party. Um, and they've implemented mandatory anti-harassment and discrimination training for team executives. Will this do anything? Is there enough? Is there any way to change the system that was built literally with uh, see-through staircases? <laughs> like, just like, that's how the system was literally constructed. Brent? I just want to emphasize once more and give and call back our recent episode on corruption uh, about the importance of institutional change and not just throwing money um, at short-term projects to try to, quote-unquote, short-term educate, <laughs> you know, on this issue. I also think I find it incredibly frustrating to hear people equate accountability on these issues with cancel culture. Mm. I don't know any powerful men who have been unfairly canceled. So let's talk about that because as far as I see, nobody's really lost anything that didn't deserve to lose everything. So I just want to say I think, you know, the independent stuff that I hear in that policy is encouraging I think it has to have teeth. I mean, the fact that the NFL and Dan Snyder and those things were allowed to go on for years and that the league doesn't really have a way in which to address this. 
that is corruption. And it's it, it's corruption because there's nobody to hold anyone else accountable that is independent and powerful enough to implement it. So I, yeah, I think those are good structural changes. And I think there's ways in which we can talk about, you know, culture shift and changing people's hearts and minds. But if they're not going to change their hearts and minds, then I'm perfectly happy to have legal consequences and shaming. Amira? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to take it on a, uh, I'm going to shrink the scale a little bit since I've been talking a lot about isolation. And I'm going to think about what I think about combating isolation, which is self-made communities. Um, obviously, that's how Biot got started. Um, but specifically, I just want to talk, you know, what's fortified me is is Black women and Black non-binary people who also study sports and um, are in the academy and who have absolutely been what I call like my, my fictitious cohort, um, my people. And um, so I want to shout them out. I want to shout out Courtney Cox and Sam Shepard and Mariam Aziz and Sam White, um, Paulina Rodriguez, and the folks who have um, been that self-made community that makes isolation just like a little, have a little less teeth. Um, and I think that finding those spaces, creating those spaces, and we've seen that historically with these groups, such as, you know, um, some of the- Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed stuff that Brenda was talking about we've seen that now um with with this podcast and I think that using those networks to find communities that you can show the entire iceberg to is a kind of individual way um that that points to survival while the policies and the corruption and we and all that happens it's not a fix. It's it's really a band-aid, but it also is survival. Um, and so that's the other thing I think is community. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? This is Shireen, and I have struggled with anxiety and depression in the past. I've often turned to counseling and therapy to help me through. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. 
and there's a broad range of expertise available which may not be locally available in many areas. But this service is available for clients worldwide. Flamethrowers, wherever you are, BetterHelp can help you. You can log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy, which may not even be possible in a pandemic anyway. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit BetterHelp.com burn, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they have started recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer for Burn It All Down listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash burn. That's betterhelp.com slash B-U-R-N. This week for our interview, Shireen speaks with the freestyle football phenom Lisa Zimush on her sport, the global influence she has, and why she feels that her sport can open spaces for racialized and Muslim women. I want to. I want the discipline to, to grow, of course, uh, more competitions and uh, uh, more diversity in the competitions and in the people that are playing. Um, you know, I want uh, maybe I would love to have people, you know, who speaks, you know, more than being a freestyler. Uh, we need freestylers who, who speak uh, about, you know, a topic maybe deeper than, you know, freestyle. Um, I want, I would love to have more women into it, of course, and uh, more women from, uh, from Africa, more women from Asia. All right, friends, it is time for our favorite segment, the burn pile. Once again, our entire uh, episode could be a burn pile this week, but we like to have a specific place for some of these stories to go. I'm going to start and I want to put uh, the Washington football team back onto the burn pile. I alluded earlier in the episode about the sexual harassment within the Washington football team and that a lot of the reporting on that has specifically centered around the way that cheerleaders have been treated and exploited within uh, the team. So what is the team's uh, solution to that? Uh, is it to, you know, pay cheerleaders more and figure out ways to respect them? Nope. It's to completely put on hold their cheerleading and music programs and hire a rebranding consultant to partner with. <laughs> I'm sorry. A fucking rebranding consultant. I like, that's the burn. Like, that's just the burn right there. Like, 
do, right? You don't just get rid of all the women, right? And then work on your new public image. You do the hard work internally. And guess what? That, that all has to happen before any PR campaigns. So I just want to, let's be quick. Burn that bullshit. Burn. 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 Bren? This is just a searing quick burn. This week, Baron defeated Tigres in the World Club Cup in Qatar, which is, you know, happens between the club teams that have won their respective confederations from all over the world, and then they compete in this thing. And lots of people think it's stupid for a lot of different reasons. Of course, COVID, yada, yada, it's all bad. But they have yet to establish a women's version of this in any kind of proper or interesting way. On the one hand, I want to burn it because, okay, if it sucks and stupid, why do we want women in it? But just at the basic level, women's football has progressed to the point where I do want to see these different clubs from different confederations play one another. There are enough professionals to do it. And if it's hokey and it's dumb, then why can't women's football participate in that? If it's going to kind of highlight and underscore the advancements that have been made and get some of these women onto platforms that they can jump off of um, to maybe get scouted and to grow that that part of the game. So I want to burn that they have yet to establish this very basic tournament for women and um, and that, okay, the fact that it sucks is often used to, you know, stymie that. So I just want to, yeah, I want to burn that. Yeah. Fuck it. Burn. 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 Mira, take us home. <laughs> yeah, surely. So, um, uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> This is so, it's so ridiculous. A few days ago, the Jacksonville Jaguars and Urban Meyer announced that they were hiring Chris Doyle to be the director of sports performance. Chris Doyle, they announced in a tweet, had served as a head and strength conditioning coach for the University of Iowa from 1999 to 2019, participated in 16 bowl games and saw 55 players selected for the draft. And they welcomed him with much fanfare. You know why his uh, date ended at the University of Iowa in 2019? Oh, that's right, because he was fired after being accused of racial bias from multiple black people, bullying from from multiple football players. He has, over his career, put 13 Iowa players in the hospital. That only got him an award. He was college football's highest paid strength coach. After black players in Iowa raised uh, their issues with him, there was a investigation the university decided to sever uh his employment but not before paying 1.1 million dollars to him to go away from iowa it took him only eight months <laughs> to fail upwards and find a job in the nfl when urban meyer called him urban meyer sat in front of reporters and told them well not in front because it's a pandemic but you know told reporters that he wasn't concerned about all of that because, quote, I've known Chris for close to 20 years. And he said he had no worries about the allegations because he's known him this long. This is ridiculous. As Rod Graves, who's the director of the Fritz Pollard Alliance, said that when Urban's sitting there talking about, I've known him for 20 years, so he's fine. That's the good old boy network. Hiring this person 
who just got fired because of racial bias and also just being really shitty person at a time when the NFL cannot hire any black people in coaching positions is just too much. I would be more fiery about this, but you know, he's widely tendered his resignation and he will not actually be working at the Jacksonville Jaguars. But I just want to end by echoing Sarah Spain, who had a great tweet on this to remind people that him being out of work for eight months with a $1.1 million severance mm-hmm. is not mm-hmm. cancel culture. Exactly. <laughs> it's just not like, it's just not, you know what I mean? People running around talking about, give him a second chance, bitch. Eight months yeah. is not like, yeah. d- <laughs> Can I can I Save be canceled? Second like one point like, seven million dollars in an eight month vacation. Right, give me one point one. What the fuck? What the hell? It's ludicrous. I'm glad that you know uh, sense has come <laughs> to to the Jaguars, but really mad that it was seen as an acceptable move in the first place. In that the good old boys network um, that excuses this behavior um, also sustains it by these hires, and I am glad that um you know that this part ended but i'm will not be surprised to find him employed in the near future my point is burn it all down all right after that burning it's time to talk about our torch bears of the week first of all our retirees of the week this is a group award i want to a WNBA greats Crystal Langhorn and Renee Montgomery both announced their retirements from professional basketball this week. Um, they're going to be very missed on the court, but they're both doing incredibly important work off the court, and we're going to see a lot more of them. And then, of course, the Lamoureux twins, uh, Jocelyn and Monique, uh, both announced their retirement in twin fashion together. Uh, they are women's hockey legends. Um, and you know, just for Shireen, if you want to go back and watch that gold medal, uh, match from Sochi, you know, and want to see them at their best, uh, that would be great. So all of them will be missed, but we're grateful for that. We've got to see them all play. Brian, who is our jaw dropping shot maker of the week? Paige Beckers, the UConn freshman whose improbable three-point shot gave the Huskies a 63-59 overtime win over the South Carolina Gamecocks in the battle between number one versus number two last week. Woo! Amira, who's our uh, performer of the week? Our performer of the week is Warren Wawa Snipe, who is a deaf rapper and sign language interpreter whose soulful signing of the national anthem during the Super Bowl stole the show. I highly recommend you check out the video of him signing and also his music. And can I get a drum roll, please? Our torchbearer of the week is Tony Bridinger, the 21-year-old race car driver who became the first Arab American female driver to participate in any NASCAR national series when she competed in the NASCAR Camping World Truck Series at Daytona over the weekend. We love that. Go, Tony, go. All right. What is uh, good? 
Ooh, Brenda, I like what I see from you in the notes. <laughs> yeah, what is good for me this week is I am scheduled, all the fingers and toes crossed, um, as part of Phase 1B of New York to be vaccinated for COVID-19 for the first dose on Wednesday at SUNY Albany. I'm so grateful to all of the people that have, um, I don't know, made this happen in whatever way. And I'm so not grateful to the failed state we have that I am signed up for it before probably plenty of other people that it should be distributed to and plenty of other countries. So there is a part of me that feels a little sad, of course, and sad for the the you know tragedies that have already befallen. However, there's mostly a ton of enthusiasm and excitement about this for everyone in my life and um, society in general to get let's like get that herd immunity please so I'm psyched yay Amira um yeah I'm really happy about the Australian Open which is the insomniac's dream um, <laughs> three in the morning I'm like up and tennis is on um Serena and Naomi both stressed me the hell out yesterday, but they had wonderful matches. Um, that was really good. I also just started uh, my first talk of my busy season, and I was so honored to join the folks up at Queens University on Zoom to do a talk. Thank you to our friend uh, Courtney Cito and um, Mary Louise for the invite. And also, I have an upcoming talk at Vandy with our friend Andrew Marinus um, and, and Lou and Derek and um, Andrea Williams, and uh, we should have fun. We should have a fun uh ride with that and also um 42 today is out now which is a book that michael long edited um it's the foreword by ken and sarah burns um and essays by howard brian and um Uhuru williams and jonathan egg and a lot of other people including myself i have a chapter in there about jackie robinson and black women athletes um and the book is now out um so go check it out 42 today um and that makes me really happy yay yay uh, I am, uh, what's, I don't know if this is really what's good, but I am, I am the least handy person. Like I did not grow up in a, in a DIY household. Okay. Like I just did not, we were not always like, uh, the most wealthy, but like where my parents had money, it was to, uh, you know, just to go ahead and pay for things to get done. Right. Like we didn't try and fix it ourselves. My mom would, would occasionally like late at night, try and like change the colors of all our pillows, but it would end up just looking like badly bleached red pillows <laughs> and things like that. But I, you know, I'm a homeowner now. Um, it came about it in a weird way and I am trying DIY and during um, Serena's, match it took the entire match basically for me to reupholster one dining room chair i thought it might take me like 20 minutes it took me the entire serena uh match but i did it uh and i also sprayed i also painted um a really ugly table and now it doesn't look so bad although i did get way less uh paint than necessary so that's a learning experience so uh you know just keep me in mind um as i as i go through this process uh, for the first time as a 34-year-old woman who would, did not did not get any skills, was not taught any skills of this kind uh, growing up. Just none. Just zero. Okay? Um, but it's fun. It's fun to have my place looking better. 
All right, so there's a lot actually we're watching this week. Uh, the NCAA softball season and the NCAA soccer season um, have both uh, hit and kicked off respectively. Um, so keep an eye on that. We've got the late stages of the Aussie Open. Um, so by the time you're listening to this, I think uh, the quarters will be done. Um, and But the semis and the final, I mean, all the players left are so good. I'm so excited. Um, we've got, of course, NCAA women's basketball. And on Thursday night, there is a Tennessee-South Carolina game that I'm super excited about. So that's probably my game of the week uh, that I've got flagged. Um, and then the UEFA's Champions League starts uh, on today, the day that this comes out uh, at 3 p.m. with Barca versus PSG. And it continues throughout the week. And next, I wanted to wish everybody a happy Lunar New Year. We are now in the year of the ox, started on Friday. Um, and best wishes to all those who are celebrating. And I also thought it was a good time um, as we move into the Lunar New Year to also recognize that we are seeing uh, unacceptable and horrific rise in violence against Asian Americans. Um, hate crimes against Asian Americans have been on the rise since the beginning of the pandemic, fueled by um, xenophobic and, and racist attacks by um, many people, too many people in this country. Um, we had some conversations about this in episode 144 and 149 about the coronavirus and, and Asian athletes and racism. Um, and also in, in episode 160 for Asian American and Pacific Islander month, and we talked about and showcased Asian athletes. And I want to also draw your attention to local, uh, groups, um, such as the Asian Pacific Policy and Planning Council or the Asian American Federation, um, from New York, who are also accepting donations and, and trying to help combat and stop these vicious attacks that are happening more and more frequently and especially in the last few weeks um, have been targeting Asian elders in Chinatown and Oakland and, and it's awful. Um, so please happy Lunar New Year and, and let's use this time collectively to do better and, and combat racism um, within Asian Americans and attacks on them as well. All right, we want to thank you all so much for supporting Burn It All Down. Remember, our Patreon is the place to be. We had uh, so much fun um, watching the Super Bowl with our patrons. Um, and perks like that are available if you go to patreon.com slash burnitalldown. Um, and just go to our website, burnitalldownpod.com. And that's where you can find links to everything you need. So I'm not going to go through the big list. Um, but what can really help us is ratings and reviews um, on Apple Podcasts. Uh, on behalf of the whole team, especially Amira and Brenda, who are here with me today, um, burn on, but not out to steal a line from Bren. It's open access. 